0: Thank you, girls. Um, they've been here since very early this morning, so they are on their way out. You stay put. <laughs> okay? Thanks so much, girls. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Hey, folks. Uh, during the month of October in our worship services here, uh, we have been revisiting and remembering... Uh, some of the core ideas of the Reformation, the Great Reformation uh, that got underway officially 500 years ago uh, this October. We've done this in the form of uh, revisiting the five solas or alones of the, of the Reformation. The first week was God's grace alone accomplishes our salvation. A couple weeks ago was our faith alone is how we receive that gift. Last week was how Christ alone accomplishes the work of God on our behalf, how he is our only high priest. And this week is the idea of Scripture or the Bible alone or in first place. Again, if you're up on the Latin, sola scriptura uh, is the old word for this. By way of introduction, I'm going to introduce three pairs of folks. Uh, Number one, the Apostle Paul and his protege, Timothy. The Apostle Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. He had this uh, next generation younger guy that he was training up to lead in his footsteps uh, named Timothy. And one of the um, things he said by way of counsel and mentorship to Timothy was this. Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. When it came to Paul coaching Timothy up, do you notice the platform that he gave for Timothy? It was, read the Scripture and use your gifts, Timothy, to preach and teach the Scripture. This is the foundation. This is the launch pad for your life. Second pair of guys, John Calvin and Martin Luther. Also, who used the same launch pad for their lives. Um, A couple weeks ago, we heard quite a bit about Brother Martin's personal spiritual transformation that served as the catalyst that lit the already existing fires of social, cultural, and religious reformation in Europe at the time. Now, John Calvin was born a generation later, about 20 years after Martin Luther, and coming after him, John Calvin kind of served as a clarifier, and organizer of these Reformation spiritual energies in European culture. We're going to hear from both of these guys in today's sermon. Finally, third set of people, myself and Dr. Ben Ribbons. Of uh, Trinity Christian College, we are going to share this morning's message as kind of a historical tag team through these waters. Okay? So we're going to tag in and out like w- old school WWF style. There we go.
1: All right, good morning. Good morning. So, John Calvin. John Calvin said that the, the human heart is a perpetual factory. Of idols. When we try to understand God, when we try to think about God, when we try to worship God, human nature is to make him in our own image. And there's two primary ways in which we do that. First, we make God a, a bigger version of ourselves. We take the best of, of our human nature and we imagine that God is like that, but better. So what's good about us? What's good about us humans? We love. That's good. So God must love but bigger. We seek justice. So God must be the most just. We can know things. So God must be all knowing. And all those are true. God is just. God is love. God is all knowing. The, The trouble comes when we Bend our understanding of God to our own notions of love and justice and knowledge. But humans have not only taken the good parts of of our human nature and amplified them to describe God, we've also taken the bad parts of ourselves. Have any of you ever read one of the Greek myths or seen a, a movie based on a Greek myth? The Greek gods are fickle and vengeful. You do not want to get on their bad side. Because if you do, they will spite you and maybe even smite you. And the Greek gods, they always are sleeping around with other gods and with humans. And then there's these slighted gods who want vengeance. And the humans always get caught in the middle. And hell hath no fury like a goddess scorned, my friends. If you change a couple of details to these stories, you would think that you were watching Days of Our Lives or Maury Povich or Judge Judy. The gods are just bigger versions of us humans, both the good and the bad. And the other way, the second way that we tend to make God in our own image is we make God's interests align with our interests. So what is it that you want most in this life? Wealth power, status, to be happy, to have a family, to have a happy family? Well, God must want those things for you as well. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be powerful. He wants you to be wealthy. Whatever it is that you want, God wants that for you. We turn God into a divine vending machine, a genie to be manipulated. The human heart, our human nature, turns God into a reflection of our deepest desires. Calvin was right. We make God in our own image. And it wasn't just Calvin who said this. He wasn't the first to say this. Paul, the apostle, when he spoke to Timothy, said to his young protege, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine." Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what's the solution? How do we make sure that we're not making God in our own image, that we're not turning God into an idol? The solution is revelation. When we try to make sense of who God is, we we get it wrong. We bend him. We make him into an idol. What we need is for God to make sense of himself for us. We need God to show us who he is, reveal himself to us. And that's what we have in special revelation, the word of God. Now, the word of God is two things. First and foremost, it is Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. And secondly, it is Scripture. It is the Bible, the Testament, the written Testament about Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in that same final charge to Timothy, wrote that that Scripture is God-breathed. It is the breath of God, the voice of God, the Word of God. These very words God self-identifies with as his identity, revealing to us who he is. So if you want to know whether you've created an idol, check scripture. See if your notions of God conform with what God has revealed to us about himself. Paul tells Timothy that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and correcting in righteousness. Scripture will smash our idols. It will show us who the true God is and show us righteous ways of living. This morning, Greg and I are going to be talking to you about the primacy of Scripture. Scripture has primacy or first place preeminence over church tradition, communal consciousness, and personal experience. And the reason we're talking about primacy is because we're talking about the Reformation and sola scriptura, scripture alone. And the story of scripture alone is really the story of the primacy of scripture over church tradition. Some of you know parts of the story. From the beginning of the church until the time of the Reformation, 1,500 years, traditions developed in and around Christianity. This is a natural thing that that takes place. People want to worship and serve God, and so traditions develop as to how to do that. And for 1,500 years, traditions were piling up until we get to Martin Luther. But but remember, Luther wasn't the first one to challenge one of the traditions in the church. There were others before him. It just so happens that when Luther does it, it becomes this flashpoint in the history of the church. Okay? And the particular tradition that Luther identified, that he wrestled with and objected to, was a tradition regarding indulgences. And indulgences formalized and institutionalized an idea that Luther very much disliked. The idea that our actions could give us merit, could be a deposit in our spiritual bank account indulgences took something that was good charity and tithing and it made it a means of attaining merit if you pay the church some money you get some merit it was a bit of a quid pro quo arrangement you buy a piece of paper cha-ching merit up sins down And in 1460, Pope Sixtus IV decided that not only could you buy indulgences for yourself, get some merit for yourself, but you could also buy indulgences for people who had already died. And so people started buying indulgences for their family members who had already passed away, hoping that their family members would then get that deposit. Their merit would go up, their sins would go down. And why would you do that? Because you wanted to get them out of purgatory and into heaven. And now, friends, what we've got is tradition built on tradition built on tradition. And then along come some men who realize they can make some money off of this by fleecing poor people out of their hard-earned coin. And so the church filled its coffers and the indulgence salesmen lined their pockets through this practice. And one day, a particularly crass indulgence salesman named Johann Tetzel shows up in Wittenberg, which is where Luther was living. And Luther, Luther just couldn't stand Tetzel's bad theology and shady tactics of selling indulgences to his friends and to his townspeople. And so Luther wrote 95 theses, 95 ideas, assertions in which he challenged this practice because he wanted to start a conversation. He wanted to start a discussion as to whether this was a practice that should continue in the church, whether it was a good practice or not. But here's the thing. Luther wanted to start a conversation about indulgences, but very quickly the conversation became about the authority of the church and in particular the Pope's authority. Luther had identified a piece of the tradition that he didn't think fit with scripture. He wanted to challenge it But as many of you know, whenever you start pushing on a tradition, whenever you start pushing on a tradition, no matter what institution or field we're talking about, people often don't hear the critique of the tradition. What they hear is an assault on the institution. It's a threat. And so very quickly the conversation moves from indulgences to the authority of the church and the authority of the pope to institute. Indulgences. And I'll save you some details, but after a series of arguments and debates and papal statements, Luther goes on trial. And because the church and the state at this point are united, it's not just a trial, a discussion to see whether Luther was theologically correct. It was was a trial to determine whether Luther was a criminal. And if he was found guilty, he would become an outlaw. And once he was outside of the law and its protections, he would almost certainly be put to death. So Luther's life was on the line. And he goes to this trial and he enters and what he finds is a a table piled high with everything he had ever written. And he's asked, Luther, will you recant, will you reject everything you ever wrote? And Luther, with his life on the line, says, Can I think about it? Can I sleep on it? So they give him the night. And he thinks and he prays and he wrestles and he struggles. And the next day he comes back and he tries to nuance his argument and explain what he was writing about. But the tribunal doesn't want to hear it. They think he's dodging the question. It's a pretty simple question, Luther. Do you or do you not recant? The things that you wrote? Yes or no? And backed into a corner, Luther speaks some of the most famous words of the Reformation. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor wise to go against conscience. And that was it. Luther was done defending himself. It took the tribunal 25 days to finally determine that, yes, Luther, in fact, was an outlaw. And with that decision, an unmendable divide was created. Luther had affirmed the primacy of scripture over church tradition. So from that point forward, the Reformation, one of its rallying cries was sola scriptura. Only scripture can bind the consciences of men and women. Oh, and by the way, the Catholic Church eventually agrees with Luther, and they do ban the selling of indulgences.
0: So as followers of Jesus, we believe this crazy idea that God actually speaks to us. We believe that the love and the power that spoke this universe into being sent us a letter. We believe that God has messaged the human race, longest text message ever, to the human race in the form of this book. But who who gets to have it? Who gets to read it? Is there a special group of people that should get to interpret it or apply it or authoritatively tell the rest of us what's what, what's right, what's accurate? How is that going to work out? The good news is that God is indeed speaking to us. The bad news is that our idolatrous ears are awfully hard of hearing Good news, God speaks, and when his word is rightly heard, it creates unity and togetherness and harmony and goodwill. Bad news, when we mishear or misuse God's word, it creates brokenness, factions, even violence at times. So is there a special group, a special community that, you know, gets to say what's what? The bad fruit of the Protestant Reformation, friends, is the proliferation of churches and denominations and Christian groups. All in the name of, we have the corner on this book and the rest of y'all are wrong. So we're going to do our own thing. For the first 1,000 years of the Church of Jesus Christ, you could accurately say the church was a single entity, a single thing. It was diverse in every possible way, but it was still pretty much a single thing. Then for 500 years, there were two main branches in the East and the West, and since October of 1517, there has been a 10,000-fold proliferation of different churches, of different denominations, of different groups. Let me give you one small example. In North America, there's this thing called the Reformed Church in America. It is actually the oldest chartered organization in the United States. Before New York was New York, it was New Amsterdam, a little Dutch enclave. First organization to get a charter there was the church, the Reformed Church in America. Fast forward a couple hundred years, a later uh, generation of Dutch immigrants in the mid-1800s came to the United States from Europe thinking, when we touch North American soil, we, these later European immigrants, will find our earlier Dutch brothers and sisters in North America, and we will be one happy and harmonious church with them. Of course! These later Dutch immigrants found the Reformed Church of America And after a not very long period of time, just a decade, a little longer, they realized we cannot go to the same church as these people. (laughs) Looking back now more than a hundred... I say this with due humility as a pastor in the Christian Church in North America, okay? Looking back, not quite 200 years later... I think it's fair to say that the reason for that, the energy for that, had very little to do with love for God or the scriptures or a commitment to truth. It had a lot to do with culture and language and personal preferences. I mean, no matter what country somebody immigrates to North America from, the challenge of the first generation is to assimilate, right? It's not like you step into America and leave all your old ways behind that you start speaking English spontaneously, Right? This later group of Dutch immigrants found a Dutch Reformed church that was fully American because it had been here for more than 200 years. And they're like, we can't do that. Now take that story and multiply times 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. And this is why we have a church, a Christian organization, a group in the Protestant world of every shape, form, it is not because we love Scripture so much. In our world today, um, we find ourselves part of many smaller groups. I can call them little communities or subcultures, right? And the particular challenge, whether we're talking about a Christian denomination or one of our little small subcultures, is to say, does this book have first place over the core commitments over the big ideas, over the behaviors that we repeat together. And as believers, this was part of our challenge, to be part of all of our little subcultures, all of our side groups, holding this nearest and dearest to our heart. Like, we've gotten it wrong. If I could rewind, there shouldn't be a Christian Reformed Church in North America. Like, I'm part of the institution, but like that's a humbling thought in retrospect. So... If you've ever been part of a group that maybe said something or whispered or implied that one gender was superior to the other, that ought to be an idea that as a believer, you should hold against this book. Because that is not a biblical idea. If you've ever been part of a group where it's been said or thought or whispered that Somebody's life matters more because they're from a particular place or are a particular color, or that somebody's life matters less because they are a particular color. You need to hold that idea or statement up against this book, and you will find that in Christ there is no East or West or male or female or Jew or Gentile or Greek or barbarian. Like, if you're in the church, like, we're in. That kind of thinking doesn't mesh. If you've ever been around a group that looked at single people as someone just waiting to be married, you know, like a little sympathy for... Like, that is not a biblical idea. Did you ever notice that Jesus, the Son of God, was single? The Apostle Paul was single, as far as we know, his entire life? Like, the two uh, most shining examples of what it looks like to follow God are single people. Conversely... If you're part of a group or community today that disses marriage, like, ah, it's old-fashioned, it's, it's stupid, why do you want to get... T-? Like, hold that thinking up against the Bible, and you'll find that marriage is held in quite high esteem and is good for the betterment of human society and your spiritual development, as it turns out. If you've ever been part of a group that said one particular country or nationality is better than another, or that, this is getting a little dodgy here, that a flag is holy and sacred. You might want to hold that idea against the thing that we hold up as truly holy and sacred. You might be part of a group or community mm, that lacks a way to talk about the morality or ethics of pick any behavior, business behavior, sexual behavior. If you're part of a group or community that has nothing but silence to say about that? As a follower of Jesus, you might want to find this book and find out what God values. This comes first over (laughs) the convictions of any of our subgroups or communities if we are genuinely following Jesus Christ. We need Scripture not only to be the mouth and the voice of God for us, we also need Scripture to be like the hearing aid, the auditory correction for our idolatrous ears. We need Scripture to filter out all the noise that is going on around us, and we need Scripture to filter out the noise that we generate in our own crooked hearts, our self-made chatter allowing us to hear The truth. We're tagging.
1: So far, we've been thinking about how Scripture has primacy over church tradition. And Greg was just talking about how Scripture has primacy over communal consciousness. What about personal experience? Our beliefs and understandings of God inevitably are shaped by our experiences. And what that looks like for each one of us is going to depend on the set of experiences that you've had. For instance, the the love, the compassion, the warmth that you received from your earthly father or lack thereof will shape your experience of the heavenly father. Our experience as suburban Americans tells us that God wants us to have a spouse, to have kids, to have a really successful job, to have a comfortable life, to have plenty of money to live and to take that little vacation over spring break. I mean, everybody around here has that, right? That's, that's been my experience. And we, and we talk about how we're blessed and we thank God for those things. So God must want me to have them. And then one or two of those things don't work out for us there's job loss, there's underemployment, there's lack of satisfaction with your work, there's not as much money as you hoped. There's infertility. There's no spouse or no longer a spouse. And we get angry. We get frustrated with God because he was supposed to deliver those things for us. Our experiences are important, but we always need to hold our experiences against scripture to see if God really promised us that suburban dream, whether he promised us that comfortable retirement, that four bedroom, three bathroom house, that happy family. Spoiler alert, I've looked. He doesn't promise that in this book. What he does promise is that we're going to have to take up our cross and follow him. We're idolaters, friends. I am. You are. We all are. We have these idols on our hearts. And what we need, the good news this morning, is that we need and we have scripture, That's what Sola Scriptura is really about. It's about the primacy, the preeminence of Scripture over the idols of my own heart. But there was an unintended consequence to Sola Scriptura. Once Luther untethered Scripture from the tradition, very quickly there was this question. Are all interpretations of Scripture equally valid. There became as many readings, as many interpretations of the Bible as there were readers of the Bible. Scholars today suggest that sola scriptura leads to interpretive anarchy. There is no unity. There is no order. There is only divisions and chaos as every single person reads the Bible however they want. Alistair McGrath Has suggested that sola scriptura is Christianity's dangerous idea. Because it leads to rampant religious individualism. Because it's just me and my Bible. And no one can tell me how to read my Bible because that's just your traditions that you're imposing on me. And scripture alone, the way I read scripture alone, can tell me how to live. Brad Gregory. Has suggested that the ensuing individualism and the lack of a shared framework is what led to secularism. Are you hearing this? The Reformation, sola scriptura in particular, is the cause of all of Western society's ills, our divisions, our individualism, our moral relativism. What are we supposed to do with this? Where do we go from here? Kevin Van Hooser, a prominent theologian, has suggested, has offered us a way out, a way to think about the individualism and secularism of sola scriptura. He says this is the solution. The priesthood of all believers. Do you remember this idea from last week? Van Hooser suggests that we all need each other. Whenever we read Scripture as much as possible, we need to read it in community, with each other. Scripture needs to be earthed in local congregations. Why? Because on our own, we read our own gods into it. We read our own idols. We read our own opinions and preferences. We need each other to hold us accountable. We need each other to name the idols on our hearts and to call us back to living rightly. If we're going to worship the one true living God, we need to do it together. Greg's going to come forward and talk about some practical ways that we can live this out here in this this place, in this space. But before he does that, I want to offer one application of this. So He doesn't have to name it. I need to come here on Sundays and hear Greg preach. I need somebody to come to this pulpit every Sunday and speak the truth of scripture. I need somebody to name the dead idols of my heart and to call me back to the living God. So Greg,
0: finish this out. Now you want me to talk about your personal idols? Friends, indeed in Christ, we are a priesthood of all believers. What do priests do? They bring other people into the presence of God. And that is what we can do for one another. We can help escort one another into the presence of God. I don't get extra points or abilities because I'm a fancy pastor. Like, we all do that. I want to suggest... Uh, three quick and simple ways um, to consider doing this. Number one, we can escort each other into God's presence by reading scripture together. I'm not suggesting just like opening randomly and having like a very serious just read for a half hour, you know, but like a, a curious, playful reading of the scriptures. It can happen in a small group. It happens here in worship services. It happens around many of our dinner tables. It can happen with your morning cup of coffee. It can happen in a restaurant. If it happens for 30 seconds, just a short verse, or someone speaking a verse that they love or are being challenged by or memorized, like, we escort each other into the presence of God. So if you have a little whisper inkling like, oh, this might be a good time for scripture, break it down. Whatever voice is telling you to be ashamed or shut your mouth, pitch that, break out the scripture. The girls who sang this morning, um, many of them, maybe without knowing it, uh, they sing the scriptures together all the time. The Latin that they sang was Psalm 117, Laudate Dominum. Praise the Lord, all you peoples. Like, this is way number two to escort someone else into the presence of God. We sing and worship God together. Again, it helps when you're with other people in a place like this, but, like, I'm an idiot. I sing at home all the time. However, in thinking about this, I was challenged. I could help invite people into singing in all kinds of ways when there's eight of us or ten of us that would bring us closer to the heart of God and again, there's a little voice inside of me that's like, dude, if you ask people to sing out loud, it's kind of weird for people. Maybe, but we'll get over it. It actually helps bring us into the presence of God. In one of our um, Thursday morning guys' Bible studies, uh, last year, we always concluded by singing a song together. I mean, we're not all professional singers, but I look forward to that moment every single week, we can help escort each other into the presence of God by singing and worshiping together. Third way is simply to pray for one another. Uh, Somebody asked me in the last year, Greg, if you could impart some spiritual gift to the congregation here, what would that spiritual gift be? And without even thinking twice, what I blurted out was, I wish everybody could know the book of Psalms backwards and forwards, like have all the Psalms memorized. And what was behind that comment is, like, if you know the Psalms, you know how to pray. You have God's vocabulary for how to pray, and in my experience, tons of us feel like prayer failures. What am I supposed to say? What should the tone be? And if you are fluent in the Psalms, no matter what situation you find yourself in, you will know how to pray, and the words will already be given to you from God himself. Like, this week... I have for a personal project, knowing all the Psalms. I'm not even halfway there yet. I'm halfway done with my life, you know, like Lord willing. (laughs) But I'm not halfway there yet, so i got to, like, crank it into gear here. Uh, I have a friend going through some chaos. It was so natural to pray for them in my spirit. Oh, God, help this person be still and know that you are God. Right? Like, I didn't have to make something up. It's like, God... God, through his spirit, is praying for this person with better words than I could could make up. So we read scripture together, we worship or sing together, and we can escort each other into the presence of God by holding each other up in prayer and all things being equal. The Psalms are the best, best, best way to train as as a member of the priesthood of all believers. Now, this shared identity we have as priests in Jesus' community, um, it trumps, in God's eyes, all our other identities. However, think how crazy it would be the next time somebody asks, hey, what do you do? If he said, actually, I'm a priest. I'm just a member of the priesthood of all believers. Somebody please do that and tell me what happens. (laughs) As a result, I mean, it seems crazy to us. And if you just like floated that out in American culture, people would be like, but in God's eyes, God's honest truth, that is how he sees you. He does not see first your vocation as a businessman or a dentist or your status as a student. God sees you as a member of his body and as a priest designed to escort others into his good presence. (laughs) Again, this is laughable because we so quickly identify as, I'm part of the rich person tribe. I'm part of the, it's hard to pay my bills right now tribe. I'm part of the male tribe. I'm part of the female tribe. I'm part of the Dutch tribe. I'm part of the Irish tribe or the Puerto Rican tribe. I'm part of the old person tribe. I'm part of the young person tribe. All of that may be true or say something about you, But the priesthood of all believers is more fundamental and the supernatural, miraculous thing that the priesthood of all believers does is it takes any part of any of those other identities and brings the best of it to the surface to share. For example, the church should take the wisdom of the old and the passion of the young and put them together with togetherness under the banner of what's best. Take any other division, it should come together under the banner of what's best and do something miraculous. At the very beginning of this message, I mentioned three different sets of folks. One final set, the Apostle Peter and Jesus Christ himself. After hanging out with Jesus for three years and failing and being forgiven and then being commissioned to serve with the rest of his days, Peter said this about how he identified himself and the group of early Christians. Like, he got it. He finally got the message. But you, please take this personally, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Again, after three years of living, eating, and breathing with Jesus of Nazareth, this is what Peter came up with, to how to identify himself. You've been chosen by God, and you are a royal priesthood. Friends, this is who we are, a priesthood of all believers, constituted by Christ and animated, energized by the voice of God in the scriptures. Amen. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, we define ourselves in so many ways. Uh, We like to think that our own personal truth is the one thing that we can know for sure. God, forgive us for being so proud and pompous and trusting ourselves on that front. God, help us to plant our feet on the foundation of your word and on the identity of Jesus Christ. And let us just take it from there with our feet walking his narrow path. In his name we pray and everybody said amen. Hey friends, uh, I invite the deacons forward to receive our tithes and offerings now. There will be no spiritual kickbacks for whatever you put in the plate this morning. No extra forgiveness. No extra anything.